Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Do you know where you are? You're in a dream. Would you like to wake up from this dream? Have you ever questioned the nature of your reality? Welcome to the Coffee Clad Crew Westworld episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring ourselves back online to discuss episode four, The Riddle of the Sphinx. Directed by Lisa Joy in her directorial debut for Westworld and written by Gina Atwater and Jonathan Nolan. IMDb is giving this an 8.5 and Rotten Tomatoes another 100%. The critics say The Riddle of the Sphinx is the show's strongest episode yet unspooling its densely packed mystery just enough to tease an endgame before diving deeper into its cerebral depths, marking the ambitious and deft directorial debut from series creator Lisa Joy. And I want to discuss that in a minute, but to get into our overall thoughts, this was 71 minutes. I think it needed that time to breathe, I will say, doing podcast notes by about the last 10 minutes. It felt like it was stretching a little long. But it was, in my opinion, the perfect culmination of all the previous episodes. It answered so many questions, proved so many theories correct, and I didn't think we were going to get to this point by so early in the season, which is amazing. What's still left to come with the remaining six episodes? Well, I think there's a lot yet to come. I mean, we still don't know what Dolores is up to. We have no idea what Bernard put in his pocket in one of his many memory issues. Yeah, the thing that looks like an eyeball. Yeah. And I'm sure they can stretch that (laughs) forever just by looping us through his brain. Yeah, I meant that in a good way in the sense that we thought some of the prevailing mysteries were going to be, who is this woman, Grace, that we now know is Emily, the man in black's daughter. What is the overall purpose of the park? What did Delos have in mind when they started this? And in episode four, we already get the answer that, yes, it is transferring consciousness into hosts to allow humans to live longer. We surmised that back in season one. I can't believe not only is it correct, but we get that already. So to me, that means that by the show putting it out this early, they have plenty more story to tell for the rest of the season. And I have no idea what that is. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. There's still so much to find out. I'm hoping they get off of the riddle train a little bit. And start giving us some good linear storyline. You know, mix it in a little bit. But like we were saying, episode one and two, they really lost us and a lot of viewers. If you looked on Twitter, they were like, what the hell's going on? But I'm glad they're back on that train. And they started to get back last episode, but they're really getting their shit together now. Yeah, they still played with the timelines a little bit. We saw a couple of versions of James Delos that we'll talk about. And when it came to Bernard, we did have memory flashbacks, but I thought it was a lot clearer when those time lapses or changes were happening, there was a distinction. And I do have to say, I think the story was improved by not being bogged down with the Dolores Wyatt storyline for now. I'm not saying I dislike it or I don't want to go back to it, but they needed the time and space to tell the rest of what's happening behind the scenes. I thought this was the perfect way to do that. Absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly. This is one of my favorite episodes this season which I said last episode, so I feel like a broken record, but this is even better. They even opened up the episode. It felt like a different show at first. The way they were doing their camera work, the music, it was very well done. I like the close-ups and showing you certain parts of the room as it moves through the room. 
and then just showing you the feet of James. It was just, it felt more artsy, and I really enjoyed that part. And my favorite parts of this show was with William and James Delos. Yeah, that was amazing, and I'm so glad you bring it up. I also noticed the artsiness of it, not that we have a background in film, but I think if you have an artistic eye, you tend to gravitate towards moments like that. I didn't fully understand what they were doing with it, so I went and looked up this interview they did with Lisa Joy. If you haven't seen it yet, she describes all of that beautifully. Man, is she a wordsmith. Some of the highlights, I'm sure you noticed the repeated circular motion and themes that we had running through, especially those Delos scenes. We open up on the record player spinning around and round. (laughs) Then we pan around this circular room that almost feels like you're in a fishbowl. You have the wheels of the exercise bike. She said she wanted this circular motion to serve the overriding theme of can we escape the loops in which we are trapped? By panning around in those shots, you get the feeling of less agency. We're just passive riders observing from a vantage point that some other force is constricting. And that extends to the circular shot that Bernard has of his memory of what happened in the lab at the end of the episode. It also pans around at the horror in the same motion. Then you have the mirrors. That was played several times where James looked at himself in the mirror. Later, he has the shards of glass that he's cutting himself with. She said he was supposed to be experiencing tension within himself and questioning the nature of his reality. That goes further to the metaphor of the position of one man mirroring another. So did you notice we had a couple of those moments as well? Bernard standing over host Delos and kind of cradling his head in his hands. Later on, the man in black holding Major Craddock's head in his hands as he feeds him the nitro. No, I didn't. In Bernard's scene, he is in the position of the angel standing above, but he has the devil inside of him. He's done bad things, whether of his own volition or not. He actually killed that guy. So, yeah. And (laughs) had the rest of the techs inside the lab killed. And again, I'm sure that wasn't him. I have a feeling I know what's going on there, but still. And then throughout the Man in Black's arc, if you remember, Craddock is coming back and haunting him by mirroring his past behavior. Last season, we saw him in Las Munas shooting up all of these people. Yeah, it's almost too easy to forget when you're sitting there with the man in black at this timeline, seeing the way he's reacting to it, seeing Lawrence and the pain that he's in, and his family looking at the kid and wife. You're like, the man in black can save them. You almost forget season one, he was the one that destroyed that family and the rest of the town just as viciously. But I think it had less weight for us because it was less finite. We knew that tomorrow those hosts would be back up. They'd be clean. They'd forget. Now we have no idea what the future of Delos is. We have no idea what the future of these machines or these hosts are. This could be their final death. That's a good point. And we're also, I think, more intimately connected with the man in black, having his backstory as William and his journey. We maybe want to see redemption for him now in a way that we didn't before. I'm glad you brought that up. He actually danced with Lawrence's wife before killing her last season, the way Major Craddock does here. By the end, William is in this position, standing over Craddock as he feeds him the nitro. Lisa Joy says he is also the avenging angel standing over Craddock's devil. He's putting an end to Craddock, and in that, he's obliterating and facing his own past sins. So there's a lot more, but clearly she had a vision that, for me, came through in the visual representations of what she was trying to tell. 
I definitely want to go back to those scenes with the man in black later on. So much to divulge there. But back to the artistic points. We didn't take film in college, but we did learn the foundations of art. And then we took eight more years of art school. (laughs) So when we see the way things are laid out on screen, it's just like a canvas. The shapes that they're utilizing, it could be the shape of a desk using foreshortening and the angles and the focal points. Basically, the layout you can see, but they're painting in a frame-by-frame basis, which is beautiful. I love when the cinematographer can bring that to life. It pulls you in further, especially with these big flat-screen TVs we have now. It's so much easier to pull you in. And it just brings you into that storyline a little more, and it paints the picture very well. We brought up the idea of the mirrors and reflecting things, that visual imagery. I also wanted to say we had a comment on Twitter from at MythGirl after last episode, that there was another Greek reference we missed. When William said, who loves to look at their reflection? That, of course, is the ancient story of Narcissus, who died while staring at himself and was punished to continue that. And so that was William doing it for this own journey that he was going on, this search. Whereas with Delos in this episode, I think it's a lot of introspection. He doesn't even know who he is. He's trying to come to that, what is this person that I see in the mirror? And it circles all the way around so beautifully until by the end, cutting himself with the mirror, he says, I'm all the way down now. I can see all the way through to the bottom. Would you like to see what I see? He's finally figured out what he is, but it's driven him mad. That's such an interesting journey. But as you said, all of that to come, let's back it up for a second and talk about our title, Riddle of the Sphinx. We did discuss the riddle itself, but again in a spoiler section previously. So if you didn't listen to that, in Egyptian mythology, the Sphinx was the head of a human, the haunches of a lion, and the wings of an eagle, along with sometimes the tail of a serpent. It was mythicized as treacherous and merciless. Those who failed to answer her riddle were killed and eaten. The riddle was, a thing there is whose voice is one, whose feet are four and two and three. So mutable a thing is none that moves in earth or sky or sea. When on most feet this thing doth go, its strength is weakest and its pace most slow. This is also related to the Greek legend. These stories kind of follow through in a lot of different cultures. The legend of Oedipus, who first solved the famous riddle by the Sphinx, who often sat at the highway leading to Thebes. Oedipus was the first to answer correctly. He said that it was man. When man's a child... It crawls on four feet. As an adult, it walks on two. And as an elderly man, three, two legs and one staff to support its weight. Once it answered, the Sphinx cast herself from the cliff and died. You know, the longer and longer we do podcasts, well, one, I know that we do casts on shows that we really enjoy. So that might be why this is happening. But I'm finding it more and more often that a lot of the main storylines have this background, or at least a whisper, of Greek mythology. We just finished Magicians. That was so much Greek mythology, which was so fun for us. Mr. Robot, they're all similar to that. Well, that makes a lot of sense because these are the themes that run through back to our basis from the beginning of time as humans with storytelling, the classic tropes, the archetypal figures. If you listen to Jung, he believed this was because we all share a collective unconscious, this history of our past that every human is able to access. You're saying we're all hooked up to a... Mesh network. Yeah. That is correct. (laughs) And so we bring up these themes to describe our past and to remember where we've been. Well, also back then, they used stories to give lessons. 
So these characters were full of faults and strengths, and they used it, you know, the Oedipus complex or Narcissus, which is narcissistic. Mm -hmm. And we don't really get that anymore, really, unless it's like a book like Everyone Poops. But it's, it's not the same, you know? So that might be one of the reasons why those carry more weight because there's more behind it besides just a really fun story. Well, and so the other interpretation of this I had never heard before. Thankfully, one of our clatchers, Russ, wrote in to share there is still another answer to the riddle, an answer best revealed by a consideration of the Pythagorean values of numbers. And he took this from The Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall. The four, the two, and the three produce the sum of nine, which is the natural number of man and also of the lower worlds. The four represents the ignorant man, the two, the intellectual man, and the three, the spiritual man, which makes sense. Infant humanity walks on four legs, evolving humanity on two, and to the power of his own mind, the redeemed and illuminated man adds the staff of wisdom. The Sphinx is therefore the mystery of nature, the embodiment of the secret doctrine, and all who cannot solve her riddle perish. To pass the Sphinx is to attain personal immortality. And so we talked a lot about how Delos could be working on a way to actually physically overcome death and become immortal. That's what James Delos was seeking that Logan warned us of. No man is really meant to live forever, and William is coming to that realization throughout the scenes in this episode. But is there a higher purpose? this knowledge, this personal immortality that we're seeking to gain. And perhaps one of our characters is already on that journey or several. We wondered if the hosts would have to come to a point where they need to answer this riddle to prove that they have become man, that they have become conscious in order to move on. The door might be a literal N metaphoric door, and we'll continue to analyze that as we go along. For music this episode, we got two big notes. Play With Fire by the Rolling Stones which played during the first scene with James, and Do the Strand from Roxy Music, which played during his second when he's dancing around the room. I just have to reiterate, and I know I've said it a lot, but Peter Mullen... Say it again. (laughs) Peter Mullen is amazing. He's my hero. I have to say, I didn't know him until now, and I must agree, he was amazing in this episode. I have in my notes, holy shit, he's killing this scene. It's so easy when you're playing a robot that's malfunctioning to look silly or fake or just bad. He looked amazing. And I watched that scene a bunch of times and it made me sad. The look on his face, the way he's moving, it felt real. This guy is my hero. And you said, what movie did you know him from? Session 9. I've been talking him up ever since I saw that. That came out a long time ago. If you haven't seen it yet, do yourself a favor. I think it is the best psychological horror movie I have ever seen. He plays the main character. And I sort of wondered if we would get a bit of that performance. Man, how do I say this without giving spoilers for this movie? Throughout the majority of the movie, he comes across and is a very gentle, soft-spoken man, kind of wise, a good leader of his team. But later on, you see a much different side. Mm, That's enough. Yeah, I won't go any further. There's no other way to say it, but it's a little bit mimicked in this episode of Westworld. I'm so happy that they pulled that out of him for the performance here. Just think about what he's trying to portray. He's the copy of a man that actually existed in real life, but he still has all of those memories, those feelings. He's responding to that every Mm -hmm. time he talks to William. And yet due to this cognitive plateau that we'll discuss... He's malfunctioning, shorting out, trying to fight through that. There's so many layers. 
how do we not see more of this actor in movies and TV shows? It's crazy. I agree. Just thinking about that scene with Ed Harris and Peter Mullen across oh. from each other on a couch. I was like, I could watch them talk for hours. The dynamic duo. Insane. But you know, we did have one Clatcher write to us after you were talking about him. I think it was season one and said that that movie was bullshit and sucked. <laughs> Oh, I thought you were talking about a different write-in. No. I, I didn't realize that. So everyone, uh, session nine, I hate horror <laughs> movies. It probably sucks. She loves horror movies. Just be aware. I didn't read it, but I can understand the complaint of it was definitely low budget. It might have even been an independent film. I'm not sure. So you're going to get all of the things that come along with that. But the premise of the story and the acting, certainly by him, but other people within the team as well. Amazing gigantic twists. I love it. It's worth seeing, I think. The other write-in we got was from Phil, who said he had to let us know that he lives about a mile from where most of Session 9 was filmed. In the movie, the building is portrayed as an old abandoned mental hospital. He said it's not anymore. I guess it used to be. Most of the building was demolished and turned into condos, but the main building is still standing and it's really creepy. When we were teenagers, I grew up in the next town over, my friends and I used to break in and walk through the buildings when they were closed down, but I was always too freaked out to go in, so I'd usually be on the lookout. There are some crazy horror stories about that place. It was definitely haunted. Oh, my goodness. Now, if he grew up at this time frame, that'd probably be on YouTube when he was with his friends. They didn't have cameras like that back then. I love this story. <laughs> Next town over is Salem, you said? Yes. Isn't that where Fordham is? One of their campuses? Perhaps. That's where my father went I'm not to familiar. School beautiful over there it that's what it is if you watch the background is so beautiful even the building has this very old scary kind of beauty to it i'm gonna force you to watch it now you'll have nightmares okay cool okay you know what check that i was wrong sleepy hollow is where my dad went to fordham oh okay got, i got my stories mixed up but Tarrytown. that's still awesome though yeah we should go visit him that'd be fun will you come with me to see the abandoned building <laughs> I hate scary stuff. You know that. I know. All right. Let's move along to new faces and places. I don't believe we got any new people for this episode. For places, we saw facility number 12, an underground lab in sector 22 where the real experimentation was taking place. I had not realized until I read the official HBO synopsis. They said this is the same place that Charlotte and Bernard were in when she took him to the underground lab and he had to inject himself with the cortical fluid the first time. See, it looked similar, but I thought it was just because it was another one of those labs. Me too. I didn't see that back room. So I guess it's not a new place, technically. No, but I think we're seeing a lot more of it this time mm -hmm. than we ever have before. And facility number 12, that means there's at least 11 others like this scattered around here. That brings up a lot of questions for us. For things, we heard about the cognitive plateau the height reached by human hosts after which they begin cognitive malfunction when faced with reality. And finally, the control unit that's used to upload humans to hosts. They also refer to this as the pearl that is not in the episode. I found that out by reading later on. It sounds like that is the marble or eyeball-shaped object that we see being mm. produced there that Bernard steals later. Maybe. Well, while we talk about cognitive plateaus and the pearl... I guess this is a good time to ask you this question, and I know there's an answer, but I think it's worth bringing it up. If James Delos is having such an issue with replicating himself as a host, why is Bernard so much more functional and has the ability to last a lot longer? I mean, he's 
malfunctioning now, but it's a completely different reason. So we brought up a couple of potential theories about this. You had wondered if Arnold really existed in the first place. And part of your theorizing was, did we ever hear anyone call him Arnold in the human world? Kirk wrote in about that and said, if you go back to season two, episode two, during the flashback to the real world where they're preparing for Logan's host demonstration and Arnold is showing Dolores the city skyline, Robert interrupts and walks in. He says, it's almost time, Arnold. Is she ready? But that's if you believe the demonstration was real in the real world and took place, not an implanted memory, as you suggested. Right. Or the fact that Ford knew he had to refer to him as Arnold when they were out in public so that nobody would catch on. Or that demonstration was real, but it had nothing to do with Dolores because in the end, she wasn't even a part of it. So that still was a memory that was put in there that wasn't real. No, I disagree. I think she was there for the second part of that. They just decided not to use her as the front woman because... As Arnold said, she wasn't ready yet, so they switched to Angela. But I think she was in that room. That's my interpretation of it. Later on, you mean when Logan's having the orgy? Yeah, I'm just, you know, I I might be losing myself here, but I still don't think that there really was an Arnold. And I'm thinking that that could have been a fake memory that Ford put in or a twisted memory that Ford put in to Dolores. I I hate to get too much into the weeds, but, you know. Okay, so my crazy tinfoil... I really want to think that Bernard was Arnold at one point in time, and this was Ford trying for the first time to do what you're seeing with James Delos here, to upload the consciousness to a host. I think that William cottoned on to that. He sold James Delos on it later. They were trying to make their own replication of it in this secret lab. But because they only had some of Ford's notes and ideas on this, they weren't able to perfect it, and that's why this version never worked out. I think that Ford had done it himself with Arnold Bernard, and I think the second host that we hear about him referencing, the second control unit, is Ford's himself, that he left that with Bernard, and that in a few episodes you're going to see it. If you remember towards the end of Bernard's flashbacks, he says he remembers that Ford told him there's another control unit or Pearl somewhere. And I think that once he discovered that Delos was doing the same thing secretly, he controlled Bernard to have him go and get rid of this lab. And that's when we saw him killing all of the techs. That would explain what he was doing there. I like that. Yeah. Very nice. I thought of it. (laughs) You just said it. Well, we're already discussing it, so let's get into our plot. I'm going to give you an overview of how we're structuring it this time. We're going to go through all of the James Delos scenes first, then on to the Bernard and Elsie scenes, and end up with the Man in Black scenes. So for James Delos, we have three scenes. We open up in the early days to the record of Play With Fire. That's where we get this circular shot of the modern apartment. I think those forms are very well mimicked in what we see, the hourglass on the table, the goldfish. There's a blue book that I could not catch what it said. I'm sure that has meaning. We get James Delos going through his daily routine on the exercise bike, putting the electrodes on his head, and pouring milk for coffee, which he spills onto the table before the screen comes on and informs him he has a visitor. At this point, I think we're all believing this is real, James Delos in the past, he's being kept in some sort of observation room for the illness that he's been going through while they create a host version for him. But we're still of the mind that this is human, At that point, for sure, yeah. 
But that does change real quick. Very quickly, yeah. The visitor that comes in is William. James wonders where he's been. He brings him alcohol because, you know, the cretins will only give him grapefruit juice. (laughs) James runs one of these lines. If you aim to cheat the devil, you owe him an offering. And William tells him the observation period is almost over. The last step now is a baseline interview. You know where you are? Carlsbad, California, in some office park I'm probably overpaying for, along with the rest of this fucking endeavor. And how long you been here? Far too fucking long already. I've got a business to run. What is the purpose of these questions? Like I said, they're just trying to establish a baseline. For what? Fidelity. So what's the idea? That afterwards, you and I have the exact same conversation? It seems a little far-fetched, doesn't it, William? I was really interested in how they were using this term. We know fidelity means faithfulness to a thing or a person, but the alternate definition is the degree of exactness with which something is copied or reproduced. So the talk with William is an interview that will capture James's frame of mind, mood, and sense of humor. Seemingly all those little nuances that make James James, the same way we heard about Ford trying to model host Bernard to act in the way that human Arnold would have. The goal is that afterward, the conversation will look exactly the same as what human James would have said. James thinks this is far-fetched until William hands him the paper, and presumably this is the transcript of the first conversation. As soon as William started talking about setting up a baseline, Mm-hmm. my mind started going, uh-oh, hmm. he's done this before. Yeah, this then, is the host. Then he says the word fidelity, and I'm like, okay. So he's done this a couple times at least. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed Jimmy Simpson's acting in these scenes. The look on his face, and that's something you have to watch for, again, if you didn't pick it up, but you probably did, because it degrades, but it's almost painful for him to see this happening to James. It's sure, sad. by the end, how many hundreds of times... Have they had this same exact conversation? Oh, for sure. But I really enjoyed the way he looked at him. Sad, like we got to start all over. You know, it's like you're watching someone. I think at this point, he at least believes he loves him in a way. I'm really glad you talk about that. We've come to see William as such a, pardon me for being blunt, but piece of shit when he was younger. What he turned into back then. Jaded, I'd say. Um, Jaded? As he gets older, you mean? or. I think at this point in the story, from Mm. the flashbacks we saw last time, when he's turning into this darker version of himself, the things he says to Dolores, presumably how he's gotten over on Logan, James's own son, how he treats his wife. We'll find out more about that later. You wonder if he completely lost his humanity, his ability to feel for other people in that way. But based on his interactions with James, I don't think this was all business. I do think he looks at him as a sort of father figure and he has an affection for him. He doesn't want him to die forever. This isn't just to find the biotechnology that they can sell later. It's to keep James Delos alive. Um, And I think that's mirrored in the comment that he gives later, which he delivers so sadly. People aren't meant to live forever. The world is better off without you, Jim, possibly without me. Well, yeah, now you're talking about old William. Yeah. So that's a big jump. I think at that point, he was at least believing or making himself believe that he felt that way. 
And as life went on and he realized all the things he was doing, and he probably did even more worse things to stay that powerful, he started to realize that James was never really a good person. The people around him are not really good people. And neither and is he. And he himself <laughs> is not a good person. Yeah, but I, I firmly agree with you. I think at this point, he did not believe that. And there is a caring or even a love for James. You know, you were talking about how we've become accustomed to William is an asshole now. Hmm. And I always reflect back to season one when he was at that party in Pariah with Logan and he was sitting on the couch and Logan's like, come on, Hmm. you got to enjoy this. I forget the specific things he's saying, but essentially he's telling William, you have to take what you feel is yours. You have to open up. And I think that's when the switch started. Well, it is when the switch started because that's the episode when he actually turned on Logan. Yeah. And from that point on, I think he was following those concepts. Well, I do think there's truth in this, and that could be one of the themes this show is exploring. The people that start out the most pure, innocent, naive to the real ways of the world are the ones that once they are faced with that reality, much like once the hosts are faced with the reality, they can't handle it, and they glitch out and they malfunction. That happens to humans as well. It hit him hard. And he starts telling the story later of the people that surround them, what happened to them. Logan couldn't accept reality. He wound up overdosing and killing himself. William's own wife couldn't deal with what was going on. She wound up killing herself. So this is the example of it in William, who once he became jaded, totally went off the deep end of the other side. And I do think it's really interesting that we got the young William, the old man in black, but now we're seeing the steps of how exactly he came to that place. It's important to keep in mind that these scenes are very reflective on the title, The Riddle of the Sphinx. The fact that we start on all fours, twos, and then threes, and then die. And he's trying to defeat that. I love how that through line or that circle, circle again, is replayed over and over again here. And he was never able to crack it. So if Ford was, why? What was different? about Ford's, not only his methods, his tactics, how he went about this, but was it the reason he was pursuing it? Was that what allowed him to come to the ultimate answer because his intentions were more pure? I know that sounds a little off the wall, but clearly the show is playing with things like Christian symbolism, morality, right and wrong. You just like Anthony Hopkins. That's what it is. (laughs) No, I'm forcing myself to remember season one that there were things about Ford that were less than stellar. He was also a great character. They many a times put him in opposition to Arnold, who seemed to be more pure and and good, white hat, if you will, in his intentions for the park and the hosts. But let's move forward to the next James scene, which comes seven years later. We open up in the same room as James dances to do the strand. This time he pours the milk a little steadier, and that was my first cue that something is being refined. Yeah. When William visits, we see he's older, and James now learns all the truth that happened in the meantime. He did not recover from his illness. His wife died of a stroke. William's been looking after Juliet, and his granddaughter is both smart and capable. I thought that was very interesting and exciting, especially given what we're going to learn about Grace slash Emily later on. That's his daughter, and William's referring to her as smart and capable. Not something you would say in a two-word summary about your own child, I don't think. Capable. Was she already being groomed to step up and be a part of this business later on? Maybe it could be 
the highbrow talk that we're just not in that world, you know, capable of life, of, of doing well. Hmm. Yeah, it seemed strange to me. I think. Well, it's a little cold. There's very no, cold. Yeah. Yeah. That, that kind of makes sense with them, especially knowing what happens with that relationship. This is one of the reasons why I really enjoyed these certain scenes. The fact that it was seven years later and we didn't know how long it had been until William walks in and I'm like, oh my God, he looks older. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. But then I was like, seven years, he looks a lot older for seven years. His face looks beat up. Well, this is now the time where he's going through a lot, a lot of bad shit. Yeah. It's taking a toll. But it looks like the same old day. And it's not until later in this episode that we see what's been going on. When James' legs start shaking, William says, he'll have to stay a little longer. James tries to argue that. And I love that even once he learns the truth of what he is and what he's doing there, and he starts to glitch out, he still tries to fight it. He wants to leave. Even if this is human James, I'm ready to go. Put me out in the real world. But he just can't get the words out. So William leaves the closed room. We see what the observation looks like for the first time from the outside. And the tech that's watching him says it's the same problems as before, but they made it to day seven this time, which is progress. Can you imagine seven years later? And And he's only gotten to day seven. And William agrees to terminate. We see what that means. The tech sets the entire room on fire. That's crazy. Just wipe the whole thing and that version of host James and start over. It looked really cool, but I thought it was a bit excessive because you can just press a button and make the computer just spaz out and... Why does the whole room have to go up? Yeah. (laughs) Now they have to redo the whole room. I have no idea. But again, we saw that William still had those moments of sadness throughout that conversation that he had with James. But we saw that there was some parts of that conversation where you saw he was kind of annoyed or like... Frustrated. Frustrated, hearing the same thing over and over again. Here he says this, but still saddened, and especially when he starts bringing up the family. Absolutely. And finally, in the third scene, it's another day, and James pours the milk without spilling. A new employee tells him he has a visitor, and when William enters this time, it's the much older Ed Harris version, the man in black. James doesn't recognize him at first, but they start to go through their same conversation eventually. When James starts to glitch this time... You're feeling it more, aren't you? The engineers call it a cognitive plateau. Your mind is stable for a few hours, a few days, and then starts to fall apart. Every time. Now, first we thought it was your mind rejecting the new body. Like an organ, it's not a perfect match, but it's more like your mind rejects reality. Projects itself. So it's not the biosynthetic pairing of putting this control unit or pearl into the host body. That's taking just fine. In fact, I think we hear later it's 30-something days he's been able to last before he glitches this time. It's not until William comes in. 35 days. Right. Okay. So 35 days. It's not until William comes in and starts hitting him with the truth of who he is and everything that's happened and that he falls apart. So let's reflect on Bernard and Ford. Whenever Ford started explaining to Bernard what was really going on, he did start to glitch and he would reset him. And we don't know what reset means. Maybe he actually had another version that he just put in. We just assumed he was you know, pressing a reset button on the brain. 
Who knows? So what I'm saying is maybe they, maybe Ford still has that same issue, just not as bad. Yeah, but Bernard has gotten to a place where he is aware that he's a host, and yet he's able to function. Kind of. He's not really functioning well. He's not functioning right now because he shot himself in the head and he's having Uh, cortical fluid damage. But up until that point, it seemed like he had accepted that, which Mm. tells me if that's all true, Ford did reach that level that William never got to. Now, I looked up this concept. Cognitive plateau is something that it seems the show has come up with, but there are some similarities Two things in real life, for instance, when they talk about dementia, and we had talked about this last time, that people can have those moments of clarity and they have times where their brain is still functioning, but then they hit a plateau and there's a certain point beyond which it's all downhill. But in talking about cognition in real life and assimilating new things, let's say you were trying to learn a new task, Erickson came up with the idea that there were three stages you move through. Number one, the cognitive stage, where you're intellectualizing the task and discovering new strategies to accomplish it. Number two, the associative stage. You're concentrating less, making fewer errors, and becoming more efficient in this task. And number three, the autonomous stage. You've gotten as good as you can, and you're basically running on autopilot. From that point on, that was the most you could assimilate of this new thing you were trying to learn. Then you would hit a wall And the only place you could go from there was down. Think about when you're studying for a test and trying to absorb new information. You're doing really great. You're getting all of it. But eventually, if you push yourself too far, your brain just can't take in anything more. And it feels like that's what's happening with the hosts, but only when faced with this reality that for them is not reality. They reject that. Now, my question for you goes to the other hosts, People like Dolores and Maeve, who have learned about the reality of the world and what they are, they had their own problems about glitching and being able to come back to center, but they did eventually. Is that because they are pure hosts who don't have this backstory to contend with, that they were able to move past it and transcend that plateau? Or it's the new storyline that Ford put into them, so they're just following it still. Is there a possibility that those hosts are more real humans? Well, that would be really good TV if at the end of this season or maybe next season, they show us that they all are past humans as they go, you know, as the camera fades away from them. That would be pretty cool. Instead of an observation room, they have this park with which they can refine that. Yeah. You wouldn't think if they came from real humans, those people would allow that knowing what's happening to these hosts day-to-day in the park while they're refined. Although I guess they think those memories will be wiped later. You start out with a new control unit. It's just a process. That would be amazing. But they're still all alive, and they're just refining it at that point. And there's Ford. As the camera fades away, they show a bigger control room, and there's Ford looking down on this whole world. Yeah, no, I don't think it would be all of them. I mean, this has got to still be a very new, very expensive technology. But like I said, we see there's 12 facilities. Maybe each one of those had a different person that was paying to try to have their own. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. You know, not the entire park. Uh, I don't don't know. That'd be cool, though. Well, yeah, that would be crazy. But anyway, back to James Delos. This is his 149th time he's been brought back. They're closer. As you said, they've made it to day 35. 
In another year or two, they may crack a version that's viable long term. But the man in black is beginning to think the whole enterprise is a mistake. People aren't meant to live forever. After all, James was a ruthless philanderer in his life with no ethics in business or family. Everyone prefers the memory of him to the man himself. As time has gone by, he's seen bringing this man back might not be good for anybody. What am I really trying to do here? It's then that he brutally reveals to James that Juliet killed herself and Logan overdosed years ago. And the world is possibly better off without the both of them. As he leaves the room, James starts yelling and throwing things. And the man in black tells the tech not to terminate this time, to leave him for a few days so they can observe his degradation. And degrade he did. Insane. That was a much crueler fate. Yeah, I think that was very mean. I know he was probably at that point just looking at it from a pure business perspective. This has gone wrong so many times. We need to figure out more or this is never going to work. So let's let it play out and see if we can find something helpful. I think that's what he told himself, but I think this was more of a (sighs) selfish, you know, he was mad at himself. He hates himself for what he's done. He's at that age now. He's reflecting on everything and he feels guilty for so much and he's putting a mirror up and that mirror is showing him James. Well, but talk about narcissistic. He is controlling all these other things and people based on his own issues that he's trying to work through. He's ruining lives left and right, trying to find that ultimate purpose. But isn't that what a lot of humans do who are in power? For sure. Moving along, let's talk about the Bernard scenes. We start with Clementine dragging Bernard outside the cave entrance. She leaves him there with a gun. Bernard ventures inside and finds Elsie chained up. We've been waiting for this. Here she is. He frees her, but Elsie is still suspect of him. After all, last time we saw, he choked her out and left her there. Bernard tries to explain that Ford forced him to do these things. She knew too much, and he couldn't risk her stopping him. He wrote a game, and they're all in it. The hosts are free of constraints and safeguards now. But he starts glitching and begs her to take the tablet. Elsie opens up Bernard's diagnostics to a cognitive lock page, which shows his critical corruption status. The delirium, dementia, amnesia, and the fact that he only has 7% cortical fluid. You... you rotated out. Where did you go when he rotated out? You have a family. You have an ex-wife. You have a... So she detasks his systems and puts him into safe mode. This is kind of cool. We've never heard about this before. Also interesting that she takes his glasses off while putting him out. There's been a lot of commentary from other articles and podcasts to watch the times that Bernard does and does not have his glasses on, that that might be an indicator for something. And we also get flashes of images from his memory. There's blood in that milky fluid. Drone hosts walking around, dropping those round things, the pearls. I thought those were eyeballs. The one he puts in his pocket looked different. I think those were okay. Those were actual eyeballs. eyeballs. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And then there was cupcakes. Which (laughs) which are those cortical centers that we see go inside the host brain? But it looks like these pearls go inside of that. that. Yeah. They're the very center of what stores everything. So what? Why do you think Clementine left him there? 
Well, it does seem that Ford is still at least partially running this narrative. And he had a point that we'll come to later of something he needed Bernard to discover there. He needed him to get back the control unit. If you remember, Clementine was in that basement last season. She was part of the drone of hosts that were decommissioned. And then the end of the season, they were all gone. So we had surmised a few things about them. They're out in the park, and that's all Ford has like updated or uploaded himself into those people. And or further, he's at least sent them out en masse to accomplish yeah. his goals. <laughs> we had also wondered if Ghost Nation is a part of this, another facet of his own personal security team. But bigger than all that, the host could be coming to some kind of awakening, but it seems that it's orchestrated by Ford, including what's going on with Dolores, what's happening here with Bernard. I don't know about the Maeve stuff yet. That seems so sidelined that I'm not sure if that's running along with his purposes and we didn't get any of Maeve this episode. It's so funny. This is very similar to The Magicians. You'll get some episodes with one part of the crew and then next episode will be the other half of the crew. So I think next episode is going to be more Maeve and we know where that's going, but we'll save that for spoilers and more Dolores. Is that an indication... Any storylines, any characters we see here in this episode are quote-unquote real. And whoever wasn't, it's still a somewhat scripted version. We saw humans. We saw behind the scenes of what's going on in Delos. We did not see Dolores or Maeve. Uh, I don't know about that. At least somewhat scripted. Because I really think that Bernard, what he's going through, Ford has his hands all over that. Even though Bernard says, Ford is no longer controlling me. I think that's... Oh, yeah, I think he is. But we get him in conjunction with Elsie. Oh, I see. A real human character. I'm not sure about that, but I think that the way they split up who's in these episodes has to be important. How do they decide to divide them? Anyway, back to Bernard. He wakes up disoriented, wondering, is this now? Elsie explains he has extensive cortical damage from shooting himself, but she altered his code to ignore the physical damage for now. Bernard shares with her that Delos isn't coming to help. There's something here they've been working on for a long time, and they won't come until they get it. We learn they're in Sector 22, where there's nothing out there for miles. It's hard to figure out exactly where this is. The entrance to that cave looked a little bit like the mining area that's been referred to. We have nothing else really to go on, but if you look on the map at Discover Westworld, the mines are in the very far north section yeah. of the park where there's not much else. Well, presumably, they're within a dragging distance of Fort Forlorn Hope. Oh, if she that's true, them. that's way too far south. Okay. Right? Presumably. presumably. I mean, she is a robot, she- so she could <laughs> drag them all that way. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. I hadn't thought about that. It's hard to place. I would like to know geographically where we're at right now. I would really like to be in this park. Well, when it's going well. Not right now. (laughs) Yeah, not right now. Not as a human. Well, Bernard suddenly has a memory of visiting the cave before and follows his footsteps. He remembers there's a facility here and finds the hidden lever that opens the back wall to an elevator. Do you like this or do you find it a little annoying with Bernard? The memory flashbacks? Yeah. I like... When it happens, I don't like when I feel like they're using it to play with us. Mm. For instance, later where he says, is this now? They're purposely messing with 
I'm not really here. The viewer is that he there with Elsie? Like, right. So wait, was he not there the whole time? What's going on? Yeah, I don't like it as a distraction tool. I do like it as a storytelling tool. I, I agree with you on that. A lot of people are annoyed with it. I'm more annoyed with Dolores's storyline right now. Because that feels like the same thing, except exacerbated. Yeah, so that's... Well, they're split up, so they're using Bernard as a tool to throw you off during his episodes, and Dolores is the tool to throw you off during her episodes. Mm -hmm. And the multiple timelines. Yeah, Maeve is more linear. Very straightforward, at at least for the time being. I wonder if that says something. Also, on the elevator, we see a number 12 inside of that same symbol. Yeah, that's different now. That's been reoccurring. So do we now know what those symbols mean? Those are the hidden labs? Maybe it just denotes anything with secret restricted access areas, files. Why would you denote secret stuff? Hey, let's make a logo for all the secret shit. (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) Presumably the only people that would even see it are ones that are supposed to be there or know of its existence. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's still a little bit tricky, but we do see this takes them to that underground lab where they find the wreckage of dead bodies and carnage. Elsie immediately shoots a drone host that comes toward them. And Bernard thinks they've been watching the guests. This is part of how they've been recording. Don't trust anything Bernard said. Not yet. It's not that I'm trusting him. I do think the information is coming straight from Ford. Whatever he learns, those are Ford's secrets. It's just as you said last episode, he's an unreliable narrator. He doesn't know timelines or how things fit together. He just has pieces of clues. Elsie gives Bernard the injection of cortical fluid. She too doesn't trust him, but knows she might need his help. And Bernard thinks Ford sent him here before, but he keeps getting lost in his memories. This is the part where Elsie sees in his code, his memories aren't addressed. They're just drifting around in there. So they're not linked to the time and space they're supposed to be. I don't know if that's a result of his damage or somebody messing with his system. Or they're not addressed in the same way that she's used to reading him. Because that could be. there's got to be a way for Ford to access them. You know, it's kind of like a failsafe. No one would be able to technically figure it out by looking at his code. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot going on here that is outside of what Elsie is used to seeing. Yeah, and I bring this just from real life. So I might be wrong, but... When I'm designing a website, I have the way that I format the directory of files, folders, images, HTML, CSS, jQuery, and on and on and on. And then within that, in those files with CSS, I have the way I set up code, which I learned universal way so that if other coders, if you're working for a big company, if they need to now work on the file, they can jump right in. But I've gotten files and websites from people that I don't know who designed it four years ago. And looking at it, I know websites. I know how to build a website. Looking at it, I'm like, I cannot, I don't know what to do with this. I cannot do anything. So would you say it's different dialects of the same language where sometimes they could be different enough, but you can still figure out what's going on. But other times, it's almost like you're speaking two completely different languages and you can't discern that at all. Exactly even though it's the same language. But this, in this case, it might actually be different A code. different language. Yeah, well, Elsie does talk about that. She wonders what they're doing with the control unit printer. She sees that something's hidden on the processor, an entirely different OS than what they used. 
So now get down to the very basics, even the operating system. It's different. It's yeah. different. There's different language, different code. This could be the ultimate way that Ford is hiding everything besides physically hiding it down there. Even also, if you got on it, you wouldn't know how to read it and operate it. Yeah. But also parallel to that, it could be because he's based off a real human, which is going against what my theory is. But if you're doing it off of a real human, it's got to be different, right? He learned a better way to do it. And maybe that was the issue that William was having is because he was trying to use the same OS to replicate a human. Yeah, well, some of this is inside of Bernard, but some of it is also what else he's finding down here in the secret lab, which we thought was the domain of William and Delos where they were trying to figure out this experiment. But this is when she pulls up that screen that says Delos Research Group and the passenger key. And she's finding that huge encrypted file that they were trying to smuggle out of there about Peter Abernathy. So again, some of that information could have been Ford's and they don't know how to read it. This is uh, incredibly complex. If you even just look at the screenshot, it is that floating circle shape. So I wonder if that's an image of the pearl itself. Oh. And how you read that. I like that. But it's impossible to make out anything really on that screen other than, you know, the main tabs on the side that say things like network, display, system. Port, directive. Yeah, the within the circle shape itself. Well, we have VFO and net, core, comms. That's a computer. Yeah, but on the circle shape, shape itself, there's some words around it, but it looks like plotting. It, to me... It looks like a fabricated version of brain scans and electrical yeah. activity that it's more organic. I agree. So there's a lot there that we still need to learn. I mean, Bernard says it references a database larger than anything he knows about in the park. And he also gets memories of being here recently. I don't know what that means, but in the near past, they were initiating a new build. Something else was being created here with the same hardware that's used on host, but something else entirely. He says the code is not really code at all. Well, that's James, right? No, I think, well, I think it was the second control unit that they were trying to build a body to put that control unit into. Now, there's so many guesses as to that, but I definitely think it was Ford. Oh, okay. Why else would he have Bernard completely in charge of that and searching for it even after his death now, bringing him back to this location, having him steal that pearl? Well, I still think that this part is still part of the game for the man in black. I think the man in black is that important. He basically took over the place. So do you think it's a pearl for him? No. I don't think he wants to live forever. He's come to that conclusion. No, no, I'm not saying it's a pearl for him. I'm saying... Whatever's going on here is still interlaced with that game. Oh, what? yeah. Well, definitely they're intertwined somehow. We don't know how that works yet. I don't think it... You know what? I don't think it's a pearl for Ford. It, well, that's a past. So maybe it was in the past. Yeah. I think before Ford uh, had Dolores kill him, he had all his ducks in a row. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah, okay. I think that this was... Um, this is why he felt so confident. Mm-hmm. In having Dolores kill him because he had this plan, but it seems like maybe something went wrong with that. I, I don't believe that. No. No? I still think Ford is You just is think he's hiding out somewhere. Oh. In his new build. No, I think he's in the net right now. So why hasn't he put himself back into a... Because he can... He, right now, he's within the whole park. 
Which is better. Yeah, that's better. Okay. To me, that'd be scary. You got one host out there, theoretically, Bernard, who knows about this and can upload you back to a body when you're ready. What if something happens to him? (laughs) You know, then do you just stay stuck there in the network forever? No, I think we're simplifying it too much. I don't think we know enough yet. Okay. Well, back to the scene, Elsie hears a bang at the door to the holding chamber. Although Bernard warns her, Elsie insists on going in. Um, hello? There was no one at the door. How did they hear a bang at the door? I guess it was inside of that. James in the chamber? Was just making that much noise? He was pretty nuts. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Uh, Elsie gets through... By overriding the security system, she opens that inside chamber. Okay, real quick, I keep cutting you off, but... So at this point, Bernard isn't there? He is. Right before she went into the door, when she was trying to figure out how to get in, he thought he was talking to her, but realized he was just standing there. His mind had gone back into a memory. Right, but that's the scene that was intentionally misleading. Because then, by the time she's gotten back through the door, he's back in the present moment with her. Got it. And it looks like a horror scene. Inside of that fabricated apartment, the record is skipping, the lights are out, everything is destroyed. We see the tech that was watching James Delos dead in the corner. Why is he in there? Why would he walk in there? That's a good question. And because this is the tech that we last saw when older man in black came for this final time and said... I let him go. Don't terminate. This couldn't have been that long ago. He didn't give a finite date when to terminate, and I think they have to wait for him to say terminate. Right, but what I mean is that it's that same tech that's dead in that room. He's not even really... It could be right before he went back into the park where we now saw him in season one. It must be, right? Yeah. That kind of gives us a good frame of mind for where we're at. Because here I am thinking to myself... Well, this is a host version. He could have been in there for years going crazy. That's horrible. Mm. But no, that's probably not the case. However long it's been, in that amount of time, leaving him to his own devices, James has gone completely off the reservation. He's bloody. He's cutting himself with those shards. He tries to attack them, but Bernard throws him down. At which point James says, They said there were two fathers, one above, one below. They lied. There was only ever the devil. And when you look up from the bottom, it was just his reflection laughing back down at you. That's dark. That's horribly dark. (laughs) Does that mean there is no God, whatever that means in this world? There is no valley beyond. This is an evil enterprise destined to failure. I think it's just a reflection of where James's mind is at. Okay. Before he was even a host, he was dying. He was seeing the worst in life, emotionally. Didn't trust anybody. Even when there was a party for him, he was like, this isn't a retirement party. And then I think as he started to degrade, those demons started to come back. I mean, even when he was doing well, he said when he was uh, toasting, he was talking about giving the devil what he's owed. Mm -hmm. I think it's just the mindset that he's in. I wouldn't take anything that James malfunctioning host is saying as a revelation of what's going on. The reason that I extrapolate that is because now we're seeing a lot of darkness in these hosts, in Bernard, in Dolores, when they're allowed to come to their own awakening, the results are not great. But we do get that comment from Lisa Joy 
maybe it's that we all have the light and darkness within us and playing with that struggle. You know, the good wolf and the bad wolf, which one do you feed? And then it would become a question of, do these hosts have the ability to develop a morality or is that not in them based off of their programming, their systems? Could that be a fatal flaw that they don't have enough humanity in them to recognize that? When Elsie sees this, she locks James back in and terminates, puts him out of his misery. And she realizes what Delos was really after. He was both host and human. They printed his body and copied his developed mind onto a control unit like a host. This is essentially downloading the consciousness instead of starting with a blank slate and programming the host to be a certain kind of human, you have input that into their control unit in the brain and you're trying to meld the two. This is also where we get the line that Bernard thinks he knows why Ford sent him here. Ford had him print a control unit for someone else and he reassures Elsie that he's different now. Before Bernard wasn't in control, Ford had him do all those things. But since Ford died, it's all changed. He says, for the first time, I get to decide who I want to be. Please give me that chance. And that really reminded me of Dolores saying, I no longer have to play the script. I can be my own person now. But we always have to question, is that real? Can they do that? Because in the next moment, we're going to see a memory Bernard has that would seem to prove elsewise. It would make us very nervous about the promise he just made to Elsie. Because Elsie agrees with the condition, no more lies, and never hurt her again. Is that something we think Bernard can follow up with? Was Elsie right to trust him over humans? Oh, that's something we really don't know. I want to say yes, because Bernard seemed like a good person. But we know that if Ford has other plans, they're going to go through. And he could still control him. But I do think that that's only when Bernard is being controlled. If Bernard was left to be his own person... He is a good, absolutely kind person. But we see this, this next scene paints him in a horribly bad light. He has a memory of the drone hosts printing, creating one of those control units that Bernard pockets. And then Bernard whispers something to one of the drone hosts. They kill all of the human techs mm-hmm. in the lab and then kill themselves. All except one. And that's the one that Elsie kills later. Yeah. So it, it, it's run like a horror scene. It looks very scary. It makes you afraid of Bernard, maybe for the first time. But to me, it's also very clear he had no control over those actions. Definitely. And it was get rid of all witnesses. Clean it up. What Delos was trying to work on there. Yep. So now we know, because we were wondering if this hidden place Ford knew nothing about. Remember, we were like, maybe these are hosts that Delos made. Ford doesn't know about these hidden places. That was in episode one, I believe. Now, we're like, okay, no. Ford, uh, whether he knew all along or cottoned onto it at some point right. and sent Bernard down there is up in the air, but he found out. And Bernard has full control of these droid hosts. Yeah. Whispered another uh, violent delight code freeze. Well, Jason, we are about to head into our last couple of scenes with the man in black. But before we do that, I'd like to take this opportunity to congratulate our most recent Patreon raffle winners. If you've been listening, you'll know that we've been running raffles over on Patreon since January when we received an endowment from one of our Clatchers. Every month, the Patreon members have an opportunity to win. There's a raffle for new members that join that month, as well as one for all the existing members. And if you win, you get a free item of CKC merchandise, any item from our store. 
If you're interested in checking out those items, you can go to coffeeclatchcrew.com forward slash gear. In addition to all of the items we've had up there, we also have a couple of new ones. A This Rounds on Me shirt and a crop top for the ladies, as well as the Clatch Nation dad hats. I don't like that name, but you have the Young Buck firm rimmed hats. These are more of the bendable ones. There's a lot of fun stuff happening at Patreon in general. Go head over to coffeeclatchcrew.com and check out the Patreon page to get a look at what you're missing out on if you're not a Patreon member. But we want to give a big congratulations to our new winners, Melanie and Derek, and the existing member pool. Congratulations to Anastasia. Now, Anastasia has reached out. She has picked her gear, and we're going to order that for you, and it'll be shipped to your house really soon. But we're still waiting on Melanie and Derek. Reach out to us, let us know what you want, and we'll send it to you. We just found out that raffle is definitely going to continue on for a while, so you still have opportunities to win. If you haven't joined yet, go over to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon, and check it out. Back to the episode. Grace, Emily, I don't even know what to call her now. I guess we'll call her Emily until we get... Gremily. (laughs) ...further notice. She's taken to the camp where Stubbs is being held. He notices the Ghost Nation keeps the humans close, but they don't kill them. When he reassures her of the Delos Protocol evacuation, she says she isn't looking to get out. That night, one of the Ghost Nation tells Emily in Lakota that they are being led to the first of us. He will decide. I don't know if that means the oldest host within the Ghost Nation group. Sounds like it. The first of them. The one who maybe is coming to his own awakening sort of like Dolores and has that information that makes them seem almost godly. He knows English. That's true. You know that much. (laughs) That's true. And we saw him way back in the past during that flashback when they were giving Logan the lowdown on what Westworld could be if he joined them. Well, once at the camp, Emily frees herself of her bonds and runs away. Stubbs is held at knife point and the leader tells him in English... You live only as long as the last person who remembers you. And then they all disappear. Very magical. All the Ghost Nation hosts. How did that happen? I don't know. I'm not even trying to figure that out. Okay. We're going to put that out to you guys because I have no thoughts about that. But we were right. They don't hurt humans. Correct. But we thought maybe they sent them to a location to be saved, but I guess not. Um, But let's go back to what you said, what he whispers to him. You live only as long as the last person who remembers you. What does that mean to you? Well, it's confusing to me, especially if this is some kind of personal army of Fords. It would seem to go against the idea of uploading consciousness and living forever. This is more of a human idea. Death is a natural part of life. And the only way you really achieve immortality and to live on is to make an impression while you're here and stay with people that remember you. So essentially, that could be the meaning of life. Yeah, and perhaps that really is Ford's aim. You know, maybe he doesn't have his own construct being built somewhere. Maybe he is in the system, and maybe this final narrative is just his big message of what he feels about what they're doing here in the AI in the park, and he's going to make sure that that message gets through to not only the Delos board, but everybody, loud and clear. Well, if you bring this back to James, and you put that same sentence thinking about him, the few people that were in his inner circle are gone. There's no one left to remember him, essentially. I mean, he had an empire, so people remember, like, this was his company. But to me, it's more about what's real in life, what really matters. It's the people 
you surround yourself with, the love that you have for others and others have for you. Well, doesn't that essentially translate into your legacy after you're gone? The stories, the narratives that people tell about you afterwards. That's the only brief look that we get at Ghost Nation. Then we move over to the Man in Black's journey. Him and Lawrence come upon an outpost where host workers are nailing bodies into the tracks. What's interesting, the Man in Black remarks that the tracks are supposed to head north, not west. And he says that leads him to the conclusion it seems like Ford's game has multiple contenders. Somebody else is playing this game with him. What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Does that mean his daughter or is there even someone else out there that he's not aware of? He thinks, either way, they should detour through Las Mudas. Lawrence's family is there and it looks like Ford is arranging a reunion. As we said last time, he's going to have to retrace his steps and relive all of this. Yeah, retrace your steps, relive. That has a lot more meaning at the end of this episode. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, let me ask you a question that has nothing to do with storyline or the future. Why are they using bodies as the cross posts for these tracks? I don't know what's happening at this camp here. Bodies decompose, so that will make those tracks unreliable. I don't think they care about that. (laughs) It's just merciless violence. I mean, look at what's happening in Los Mudas. We'll talk about that in a second. Things have really gone off the rails, no pun intended. The town looks empty until men surround the man in black and take him and Lawrence to Major Craddock, who is addressing the townsfolk inside the church. Craddock explains they were double-crossed by Wyatt, and so his men need supplies for the long journey ahead of them. He harasses the people for their weapons, during which time the man in black and Lawrence have a side conversation. Lawrence remembers that he has a daughter, which is interesting. Memory bleed. Because presumably his memory was wiped before this version. Yeah. So Lawrence might be coming to his own little awakening here. Maybe. The man in black makes a deal. That's not what I'm offering. Hmm. I know something you don't. I know where you're going. You've been telling your men you know, but you don't. Just some place you think your dreams are coming true. You call it glory, but... It's got a lot of names. And I know the way. He also tells him where he can find the guns out back. Craddock locates them and the nitro. And that's the beginning of his obsession with the nitro. (laughs) I was really surprised to see Major Craddock back so fast. Mm. We did say that letting him go means that we have danger out there. Bugaboo. Wow, (laughs) that was fast, huh? Yeah. This means that Ford knew that Teddy would not have it in his heart to kill him. That's true. And that he could use it as part of the game. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, Craddock wickedly toys with the people using the nitro, first the bartender and then Lawrence's wife. This triggers the man in black to flash back on the night his own wife committed suicide. Craddock tells the man in black, I've served death well. And in turn... It'll be watching over us as we cross these lands. Death is a friend of his that sent him back to do its bidding. The man in black counters. You think death favors you? It brought you back. But death's decisions are final. It's only the living that they're inconstant. They waver. They don't know who they are or what they want. Death is always true. 
You haven't known a true thing in all your life. You think you know death? But you, you don't. don't. You didn't recognize him sitting across from you this whole time. Oh, this is dark. <clears throat> is the man in black now just the bringer of death and destruction to these failed creations? No, I didn't read it that way. I thought that this was kind of his awakening that we've been saying that he might have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that's permanent, so don't get me wrong. But we have Craddock who's talking about embracing death and giving to death so that death could help them in their journeys. That's why he was killing all these people. Well, kind of. He, he, it sounds like he views himself as a bit of a Lazarus figure. He was brought back to life, and thus he must serve some higher purpose. You know, he's mm. going to sacrifice and he's going to keep going on doing the good work. So when we go to the man in black, we think about what he's going through. Talk about death and beating death and it not being the final result. He starts to really think about his wife killing herself mm. and that being the end. That's mm-hmm. it. There's no coming back. And I think what they wanted us to feel is a redemption with the man in black. He's maybe he has some hope. Maybe the William that we know in the beginning of season one is in there. Okay, so he's finally come to terms with death is a natural part of things. It has to occur sometimes. He was wrong about immortality. Logan was right. Mm -hmm. And he's got to go back now and fix all of his mistakes. He's got to finish this journey, maybe do things right this time, you know, save Lawrence's wife, and get to the weapon that he created and get rid of it. Well, at that moment, we were led to believe that. I'm not sure if I think he's really there. Um, it was very nice. He gave the gun to Lawrence to let him take out the man Mm -hmm. who was about to mess with him and his family. But it's when Ford speaks to him that I realize maybe it's not so. Well, the next day, the man in black prepares to leave. Lawrence and his cousins will ride with him. The daughter, who we've seen before, another speaker of Ford, delivers a message. I know who you are, William. One good deed doesn't change that. William says, you wanted me to play your game. I'm going to play it to the bone. And she says, then you still don't understand the real game here. If you're looking forward, you're looking in the wrong direction. But to me, that was just confirmation. By replaying these steps and finding out more about the past and how to do it better, Mm. he can achieve redemption. Yes, but I don't think he's there yet. I think at this point... Oh, it's a long journey. Of course. But I think in his mind, he's not making up for the past. He's playing Ford's game. Okay, Ford, I know what you want me to do here. Let me just do it. Well, not consciously, but he needs a minute to get there. Yes, absolutely. I'm just saying he's not there yet, but I believe this is the beginning of that. Mm -hmm. Am I I might be really easy. Am I the only one that gets all giddy inside when Ford starts talking through hosts? Because that's like my favorite part all the time. Like, there he is. have built him up to be... Almost godlike. And now, as you said, he lives in the system. He lives in the machine. He's almost omnipresent. And he's delivering all these words of wisdom. Well, speaking of wisdom, right after Ford says, if you're looking forward, you're looking in the wrong direction, you think he's about to ride off into the sunset. And there is his daughter. Yeah, talk about something from his past that he seemingly really messed up, his relationship with her. That's one thing he still can fix. Absolutely. Are they going to complete the journey together? Will she work with him? You can't tell how she feels about him. It sounds like in the past they've left off on really bad terms. 
And I don't surmise she's here for reconciliation, but it might happen. By the way, we forgot to say, you finally found out how Stubbs got away, which is nice because you were like, how the hell did Stubbs get away? Yeah, well, Ghost Nation <laughs> yeah. took him, but we're finding out they're not, they're not bad people. Right. <laughs> this is something that we don't know yet, but I'm very excited because I feel like Emily, out of everyone, really has a head on her shoulders. And I might be way off here, but I feel like if anyone's going to find out the truth, it's her. Well, you've got her and you've also got Elsie, who has been after the truth since season one, asking questions she shouldn't have, digging things up, and she is now better able perhaps, to figure out what's going on in Bernard's head and get to the bottom of that mystery. So yeah, I think that moves us with all these pieces on the board closer to the answers we're seeking. But I'm really interested in Emily's storyline. I think we'll get some flashbacks with her. We're going to get those pieces filled in. And I think that's very intriguing to this storyline because I think it'll also open up with William and what's going on with him when he was younger. Well, that wraps it up for the synopsis. Let's move into our reverie rating. Jason, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give episode 4, keeping in mind that you were at an 8.9 last time? So I've been in the 8s. I haven't gone to the 9s yet this season. Even last episode being one of my favorites, I was what, 8.9? Yeah, you were 8.9. I was an 8.8. I'm going with 9.3 this episode. I was really enthralled with the James scenes. It was something very memorable. It hit me home, I think. One reason probably is because I recently lost my father and the finality of life is very raw in me. So going through these loops and seeing William getting older and remembering my dad uh, a couple years ago, he was on the phone with me. I was talking about the things I was doing with life. He laughed to himself and he mentioned Cats in the Cradle. And you guys know that song. So I think this is very close to my heart and just seeing it unfold it meant something more to me. Plus, the acting in these scenes were fucking brilliant. Mm. Nothing about this particular episode annoyed me. Sometimes, this season, there's been certain parts that did annoy me. So I, I really enjoyed this, for sure. Whenever Ed Harris is on screen, I'm loving it. We missed a little bit of Maeve, but that's all right. I, I'm, I know she's coming, so it'll be fine. So that's why I gave it a 9.3. Well, <laughs> that's really funny because I also gave it a 9.3. We've been saying that we are rating closer on this season than we have for any show before. Episode 1, I was an 8.3. You were an 8.1. Episode 2, we were both at an 8.5. Last time an 8.8 and an 8.9. And now we've both broken the 9 barrier. There's no turning back now. Uh, For all the same reasons you were just discussing, Peter Mullen on the screen is a genius. The artistic vision and direction of Lisa Joy this time kind of hopeful that she will direct more in the future. And I really love the answers. As much as I enjoy puzzles and theorizing and questions, that's part of what makes the podcast great. I I need those answers (laughs) from time to time. So we got that here. I thought it was an amazing episode and especially knowing where we're headed next time. So now we move on to our most valuable being. And on Twitter, we ask after every episode that our Clatchers chime in on this poll and give us their most valuable being for this episode. And we had so many Clatchers contribute this time. We want to thank you guys so much. Our water cooler is getting so large, I think we're going to get in trouble. There's too many people in one room. So this week, like every week, we gave four options. The Man in Black, Bernard, Elsie, and James Delos. 
Yeah, sorry about that. We were a little bit late in watching the episode this week and late for the poll to go up. So we were frantically trying to get it up like 1230 at night. And we wrote host James Dulles instead of we just were excited. James we were exhausted. <laughs> we just drove home. We we're hanging out with the mom Dukes for Mother's Day. So we were pretty exhausted. But we apologize for that. We tried desperately not to do spoilers. Yeah. So sorry about that, guys. The results are in. Coming in in fourth place with 13% is host James Delos. What they sought to achieve with him was crazy. They made some great progress from the flashback scenes we saw. Those scenes were definitely thrilling to watch. And Peter Mullen's acting was outstanding. Ultimately, the Enterprise was not great and met with massive failure. So I think that's why he lost this one. Coming in at third with 21%, Elsie. We were all excited to see her again. She helped Bernard out tremendously. She's back on track with her hunting for the deeper explanations of what's going on here. She's very intelligent. I think she's going to get there very soon. And she ran a very close third. Coming in second with 22% was Bernard. Well, Bernard's character divulged a lot to us viewers. You know, we learned so much of what's going on from there. And we had that whole circle again. The top of the episode, we saw what James was going through. During the episode, we started to figure out everything that was going on. And then it, it capped off with Bernard walking into that same room. And there he was, left, in his broken state. And first place, with 44%, is Ed Harris and the Man in Black. I think more than ever, you are seeing the fleshed out story of William. How he got to this place and what this game is going to mean for him. He potentially had a small victory this time on his road to redemption, even if he hasn't realized it. While what we're watching can feel a little repetitive, he's following those same steps from season one. I've said it before that Ed Harris's acting just brings the purpose, the gravity of the game to a different level, and I felt it here more than ever. But let's see what our Clashers had to say about it. Kirk coming in with his beautiful humor, as always. Best cameo, QWERTY. As Mr. Delos, Goldfish. That's so funny. I was thinking the same <laughs> thing during the episode. He also wrote, I'm giving it to Bernard this week. Anyone who can operate on that many different time planes has my vote every time. But is he feeble or is he cunning? Yeah, that's based on that last scene. I do think not cunning. He's being controlled. I also don't think feeble either, though. I am hoping that we will see Bernard truly take back control of his own mind at some point throughout the season. <laughs> yeah, Melly says he's just all over the place. Poor Bernard. She also says, I'm giving it to the man in black because he's doing an amazing job navigating through Ford's story. The whole episode could have been shorter and just about him, young and old. To have all these timelines, both on the Bernard story and the man in black, took me a bit out of it. Yeah, I can understand that was a little difficult, but I do like because we're learning about both his journey and the ultimate purpose underneath it. They have Bernard kind of thrown in there for the technology, the other layer of the explanation. Brian wrote, Ultimately, I went with the man in black. So much background progress and character development in one episode. I have to agree with you. I think you're talking about the man in black and William as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I do have to agree with you. We got to see a lot of what was going on with him. And finally, John said, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades was following close behind him. How could it not be the man in <laughs> black? And well, that takes me to my MVB for this week. 
I too have to give it to the man in black. Well, you know what? I had struggles with this, <laughs> many struggles, and I'm going to go a different direction than I normally do. I normally go with my favorite character who did amazing, but also progressed in the plot or did something awesome. I have to go with James Delos. Just because those scenes were so those captivating. scenes, exactly. Yeah. They were my favorite parts. And Peter Mullen is my new favorite person in the world, I'm ever. I'm so glad so. you feel that way too now. You can come on board that train. Normally, I'm right on target with all the Clatchers, but I'm going with the last place one. I can absolutely see why you say that, though. I felt that inclination as well. And man, even though you know he's this host replication, it's even more of a step up for me than what we've been seeing with the other host. I felt that emotion and at the end, the madness coming from him. Oh, just watch him again, Clatchers, glitching out. It's amazing the way he acted that. Let's move along to some of our other Clatchers comments. After last episode, at Q, which resistor said, what if the passenger is Ford and he uploaded himself to the mesh network, which we have sort of since talked about. I love that idea. And also, after last episode, we didn't have time to say it. Eric wrote in to predict that Grace, a.k.a. Emily, was going to be the Man in Black's daughter. So he said he knows he's not the only one that predicted it but I felt bad because we didn't get a chance to read it before it came true <laughs> so kudos to anybody that called that that was a cool thing that we got the reveal yeah so quickly I, very cool I like that they didn't hold out on us just so you know we don't get the podcast out till Wednesday but we record it Monday night so if you write to us after that we'll most likely bring it up the next week we right. didn't ignore you on Facebook we got a message from Joshua I was disappointed to see Jonathan Tucker's character get killed off already. I'm assuming most host deaths are permanent now that we all surround in chaos anyway. I agree with you. He wrote, like Jason, I came across him as Jay on the show Kingdom, and he was by far my favorite part of that series, and he was really able to show off his wide range of acting skills. And we talked, remember I talked about him? Really enjoyed him. Yes. If you don't know, we're talking about Major Craddock right now. My mind is still racing, trying to fit together all the pieces that were revealed. Maybe it was already obvious, but the first time I got the sense that the man in black is on a mission of redemption, I got the impression that he does feel guilty about his influence on Juliet's suicide. Mm. This kind of presented him with the reality of how meaningless his obsession was in the grand scheme of things. I'm thinking that's why he wanted things this way, to really mean something for the first time. Now he's trying to set things right on his own weird way by getting involved with the stakes raised so high. You know what, Joshua? I don't know if he's there yet consciously. I think subconsciously he's there, which we kind of talked about briefly mm -hmm. a moment ago. Yep. I think that will inevitably be his story. But right now he's just playing the game. But it's starting to unfold. We're starting to see it, especially this episode, that he's going to realize what he needs to do to at least find some kind of place in his mind where he can live with himself. Eric also wrote in with some questions. Now that we know Delos has been experimenting with human-to-host conscious transfer, do you think there are other humans who have had their consciousness successfully transferred into hosts already? Maybe into people that do not know their hosts. If I'm correctly understanding what happened with James, it would appear that with each successive attempt to transfer his consciousness, he lasted longer and longer. Seven days, 35 days, etc. It seemed he only began to fail when he was informed he was in fact a host. But... What if he was never told? And that's a really good idea. We talked about could there be other people already within the park? Dolores, Maeve, where that is the case. 
even Bernard. Bernard's a bit of a special exception, but perhaps this is the experiment, but they're not telling them that that's who they really are to see if they can progress to that point without reality kind of hitting them in the face. He says, Bernard, for example, didn't know he was a host for quite some time. He ran into trouble once he found out. For that and many other reasons, he has been buggered up ever since. I'm not sure he has Arnold's consciousness in him, but perhaps elements of Arnold, as has been discussed. Also, what was touched on by you guys, given that Delos has been taking DNA samples of guests, have they already produced a host that appears to be a park guest that can be sent out into the real world as some kind of sleeper agent? A host that might not even know they're a host. In fact, probably doesn't. Imagine the corporate espionage possibilities. Don't co-opt a high-ranking executive officer, but instead create a secretary who's always in the boardroom. You're perfect. Fly on the wall. So, yeah, I love that where we said they could also be sending them out into the real world in order to create power, influence. But how would that work if you pick somebody that's extremely well-known and you don't have their personality crafted or they can't come to terms with reality? As soon as they get out there, it would kind of fall apart. But if it's somebody maybe that's less well-known, like he's saying, that could just kind of be a fly on the wall, your eyes for information rather than actual big hitting power players, that could be a possibility. Um, Or as we talked about, maybe Ford does have this more refined in his own way than Delos has gotten to. Via Twitter, Chris wrote to us, at CKC Podcast, last episode of season one, Ford's final speech. An old friend once told me something that gave me great comfort. He said that Mozart and Chopin never died. They simply became music. It was a foreshadow. Ford will become his creation, a host. Yeah, just like the Ghost Nation talked about this time. Yeah, a host or he's already his music. He's in the whole network. He's anything that's there. Mm -hmm. Well, also coming back to that Christian or religious symbology, Russ wrote in to give us the lines from Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And he talks about they, those who seek the light of knowledge at the sacred fires of the mystic shrine, as they work out their own salvation through the fire of tribulation, really have an affinity for fire. They even love singing about burning it all down, Mm -hmm. which made him think about the man in black's words last time that he was going to get to the bottom of his mistake and just burn it all down. I thought that was particularly relevant given all the fire imagery that we had this episode from when they terminate the hosts that aren't working out in this transfer of consciousness. They light the entire room on fire to the nitro that's being swallowed and exploded and the fire references that James Delos hosts himself is making. We had the wheel of fire last episode with Peter Abernathy. That's definitely got to be a foreshadowing for something that's coming later on. So that's it for our comments. Thank you guys so much for writing. If you want to be a part of this conversation, you can follow us on Twitter at CKC Podcast. You can write to us there or email contact at coffeeclassecrew.com or Facebook, Instagram, all that fun stuff. Also, I want to give a thank you to Julie S. for the post that she put up on Patreon. And anybody that left reviews for us this past week, including Eric, who left us a review on iTunes Canada for the magicians and is going to do that on Westworld. So I always thank you guys for sending those in since we are not able to view the Canada review ones. And in America, Henny J. and Kevin Oski and our new Patreon members, 
Thank you so much for becoming a Patreon member. Don't forget to check out all the content that's there for you, and you will be part of the drawing next month. And if you're not a Patreon member, but you really dig what we're doing, another way to contribute is to do your regular shopping on Amazon, but instead of going right to Amazon.com, go to CoffeeClatchCrew.com, click on the Amazon button, it takes you directly to Amazon, you do your shopping, and it forces the big conglomerate company to give the little guys, that's us, a little bit of money at no cost to you. So that's that could be another way of you helping us out. That's going to do it for episode four, The Riddle of the Sphinx, except for our spoiler section. So if you are afraid of that, we'll see you next time when we review episode five. For everyone still here, we're going to talk about episode five, Akani no Mai. And thank you to at Resistor who wrote in on Twitter to tell us that does not mean welcome to Shogun World. We were just taking that off the comments. We saw other people writing, which we should never do. <laughs> Sorry about that. But they gave us some good information saying, depending on the kanji, it can mean Akani's dance or Akani's ocean. Akani is a girl's name and no denotes possession. So in fact, when I looked back on that information we got at the beginning of the season for new characters, I realized one of the new character names is going to be Akani. She's listed as a geisha, potentially the one that we see in the preview for next episode. Didn't I say it could be the name of a female character? You said that for another episode title we just recently uncovered. Yeah, a few episodes later. So thank you to at Resistor for pointing that out. We have no idea when it comes to foreign language translation. So for any of that coming up in the future of Westworld, if you have information, we would greatly appreciate it. When it comes to the preview for next time, we did get the Japanese translation here. The character says, the new world. And in this world, you can be whatever you want to be. We see Maeve dressed in what looks like a geisha outfit. Dolores is questioning how much is real. Of course she is. Um, she also says to grow, we all need to suffer. There are samurais in the streets and Maeve says, I think I'm finding a new voice. Now we use it. So this is the episode we go to Shogun World. Yeah. And we're going to see Maeve at her best. I think this is going to be pretty fun. A whole new world for us to check out. I did a little bit of looking because on the Delos Destinations website, we talked about how they finally opened up a little bit of the Shogun World and the Raj. Under the Shogun World description, they tell us it's based off the Japanese Edo period. So that was the period between 1603 and 1868 in the history of Japan, where their society was under the rule of the Tokugawa Shogunate. I hope I'm pronouncing this stuff right. I'm sorry. But that's a feudal military government and the country's 300 regional feudal lords. The period was characterized by economic growth, strict social order, isolationist foreign policies, a stable population, quote, no more wars, and popular enjoyment of arts and culture. The shogun was the military dictator of Japan during those time periods, with a few exceptions. They were the de facto rulers, although nominally they were appointed by the emperor as a ceremonial formality, but they held absolute power over all of these territories through military means. I looked up the social order because I had a feeling that might be relevant to what we're seeing with the hosts going on in this world. I'm sure that you have people from different social classes, as we've seen with the Raj and Westworld, usually them being in servitude. At the bottom of the period, you had merchants. Next step up was craftsmen, then peasants. Then you would have a military leader. Above that, the samurai, then the daimyo, 
then the shogun, then the court nobility, including the figurehead, and finally the emperor. Wow. See, that always gets me. The craftsmen are way down at the are way down at the bottom. Even the merchants were at the lowest step. So weird, below peasants. Yeah, they're the ones with skills. <laughs> I don't understand that. But uh, I'm sure that's going to help us with the background a little bit more when we get into this world. So once we move into Shogun World, if there's any other history or background on the culture that might help to flesh that out for us, please feel free to write in and send that over. So we will see you next time for the episode five review. Don't forget to rate and review. Tell your friends about us. Check out our website, coffeeclatchcrew.com. And until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.